So today we're in a series called What About 2.0, where we're essentially just talking about the questions for some of us that have popped up in our journey, whatever that you, whatever you call that journey. There are lots of different words for it. Some people call it deconstruction. Some people call it unraveling. Some people call it blah, right? Like there are all sorts of different uh, ways of, of naming what that journey is. Um, and last week we talked about the Satan. And so I thought this week we should follow it up with another really lighthearted, um, encouraging topic. So let's talk about demons. Um, shall we? Um, when, when you hear the word demon, what comes to mind? Am I the only one that thinks about Linda Blair <laughs> with her head spinning around and, and shooting pea soup around the room? How many of you have seen The Exorcist? Yeah. How many of you are into those kind of movies? I'll just admit it. I, I like the spooky, scary movies. Um, I think they're like the con- <laughs> we have Conjuring fans in the room. Yeah, it's almost our season, people. Halloween is coming. Um, and somebody's going to go on YouTube and take this little bit out of the sermon and say, see, they are Satan worshipers. They're very excited for Halloween. They're in big trouble. Yeah, I think when we think about the demonic, we, we tend to go into those really fantastical sort of moments where somebody's like levitating or, you know, something like that. And uh, here's what I want to say. I, I realize that these kind of topics, whatever you believe on it, you, you probably have a belief that you're convinced is true because of experience. And so what I want to say today is I'm not going to try to convince anybody of anything. I'm not going to try to convince you that you should or sh- that you shouldn't. I, I would never try to convince you that you should. I would never try to convince you that, if, that your belief is like a, a, a bad thing. But here's what I want to say. I think that there's more going on than just sort of people levitating and, and, and projectile vomiting everywhere. I don't think that's actually the point of exorcism. And I want to look at the, the Bible today. We're going to look at some stories revolving around Jesus and some experiences Jesus had with people who were in a very specific sort of oppressive state. Um, and I want to say what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to try to diagnose these stories as people who are struggling and going through mental health challenges. That's often what happens, right? Because people realize these stories are a little, you know, out there. Uh, it's not our daily experience. And so if we want the Bible to somehow be true, we have to figure out a way to take an ancient story and understand it through modern psychology. I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's what's going on in the stories at all. Um, I'm also not going to do this thing that I did early on in my process, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago when I started really wrestling with what the Bible was and what it was doing. I, I'm not going to dismiss them whole cloth. There was a part of me at one point that read, like any story like this where there's a, like a demonic procession and an exorcism, that's just ancient superstition and we no longer believe in that. So let's just ignore these stories. Um, I actually don't think these stories should be ignored. And I hope if you hang with me till the end, I hope you'll see that actually these stories have some really significant modern uh, applications. They have some things to say to us in the world we currently live in. Um, And so I I think it's interesting to note that, that really in the Hebrew scriptures, there's no talk of demons, right? Now, there are some words that Bible translators translate to be demons, but that is a Bible translator making a decision based on what they already think that thing should be, right? You, you understand what I'm saying? Like every, in, every translations and interpretation, I'll say that every week if I have to, because it's really, really true. Everybody who translates the Bible, nobody's really doing it from a place where they can separate themselves from the process. Um, we bring all of who we are to everything we do. Uh, and so what people believe ends up being wound up in how they translate the Bible. But we're going to look at the Gospels, and I want to specifically look at the Gospel of Mark today. I want to look at two stories, one just sort of to introduce, and then one that we'll spend some time on. 
Um, I, I don't think when they talk about demon possession in the Gospels and exorcisms, I, I don't think they're intending for us to get lost in how really strange and weird and, and different this is. I think they're making a bigger point. And so I want to give you a little context for the Gospel of Mark because it's kind of important. Um, the Gospels, the earliest writings we have in the Bible, in the New Testament, uh, are not the Gospels. I, I, I think we always, ass- I grew up assuming that the Gospels were written first because they're in there first, but they're not even in the right order. Because <laughs> um, Matthew was probably the second Gospel to be written, Mark was the first. And the Gospel of Mark was written, and I think maybe even the occasion uh, called for the Gospel to be written. But the Gospel of Mark was written around the year 70. So maybe a year or two on one side or the other. But what's so significant about the year 70 is that that's the year the world ended. Um, you've read in the Bible where they're like, the world's, it seems, well, that's actually not what they're saying, but in our language, the world's going to end. Well, they were right, it did, in the year 70. Because in the year 66, there was a Jewish revolt against the Roman occupiers. They took up arms, and in the beginning of the revolt, they were winning. In the beginning, they were successfully on the way to liberating themselves from Roman occupation. Now, what happened is Rome had way more troops elsewhere, and so they brought them in, and as a result, they decided to really punish them, to really, like, like, this is what happens when you rebel against Rome. And so they came in, they laid siege to Jerusalem, eventually they ransacked the city, and they tore the temple of God down and burned it. And, and so the world effectively ended. If, if you, uh, think about it like this, like 9-11 for us, right, in the United States, there's this moment where it, it, it didn't end the world, but it changed everything. Right, it changed everything in this country. Um, and that's the moment, right? But time's a million. Because this is not only the center of their religious experience, it's the center of their political experience, and it's the center of their economy. And everything gets torn down and burned. And those events are the context in which whoever wrote the Gospel of Mark, because they're all anonymous, tradition has given them names, but they're all anonymous, That's the context in which Mark sits down and takes pen to parchment or whatever, skin or whatever he wrote on, and begins to tell the Jesus story. So Mark's telling of the Jesus story, Mark's not not saying, hey, I just want to tell you uh, about Jesus, so here's his biography. Like, Mark begins the story when Jesus is 30. (laughs) You missed a couple years, Mark, if this is a biography. They're trying to tell the Jesus story on the backdrop of everything falling apart and how the Jesus story could have helped prevent it and how the Jesus story can give us direction in the aftermath. Like that's the point of Mark. And so the first mention of demonic activity in the gospel of Mark comes in chapter one because right out of the gate, Mark's like, this is gonna be fun. I'm gonna give you some some stuff here, get ready. And it's in Mark one, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this is a chatty demon. <laughs> Like, this is not just like kind of grunting. and no, this, is a, this is a demon who's like, let's have a conversation about this. Why are you here? What, what, and the demon actually in this story knows who Jesus is. 
It's like, I, I, you, you are the holy one. I know who you are. Why have you come here? Are you trying to pick a fight with us? But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed and they kept asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now I wanna talk about this, but I wanna talk a little bit about um, this thing in the gospel of Mark that's totally for Bible nerd folks uh, who really know how to bring down a party. So here's, here's I'm gonna tell you, if you ever wanna bring down a party, just start talking about this. There's this thing in the gospel of Mark that scholars call the messianic secret. Has anybody heard of this before? It's one of my absolute favorite things just, just because. It's just so. So what happens in the gospel of Mark happens in this story. Every time somebody recognizes Jesus, he's like, don't tell anybody. Right, to the demon, don't tell anybody. To other people, he's like, hey, 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 don't tell anybody I healed you. Don't tell anybody I fed you miraculously. He asks his disciples, who am I? They answer, you know, Peter says, you're the, you're the Christ. He's like, shh, don't tell anybody. The entire gospel is this one right after another, Jesus going, don't tell anybody. Then at the end of the gospel, the women come to the tomb and the angel says to them, go tell everybody. And they walk away saying nothing to no one. I know it's not true, but I like to believe this is Mark. Just It's like a long burn joke, right? The entire gospel, he's like, shh, 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 tell everybody. And they're like, we're not telling anybody. We're not going to do it. And it's one of my favorite Bible nerd things about the gospel of Mark. Now, did you notice, what does this text call the spirit, this, this entity? It doesn't call it a demon. There's a word for that, and it is used other places in the, in the gospels. It doesn't call it evil. Now, the translation I usually use, the Common English Bible, translates it evil, but it's actually not. There's a word for that, and it's not that one. The, the writer uses the word unclean. There's a man with an unclean spirit. Now, to be unclean in the Jewish world didn't mean you were sinful. Right? You could be unclean for lots of really good, important reasons. For, and, and unclean didn't mean that you somehow needed to, to, to like be made right with God necessarily. It meant you needed to go through a purity ritual. Now, unclean essentially meant you can't go to the temple and do all the temple things because you're unclean. So you have to go through a process. Here's like, for example, having sex would make somebody unclean. Also, being around a corpse would make someone unclean. So someone passes and you're preparing the body. That's a thing you need to do. And yet that process makes you unclean. So there's a ritual for that. There's a way to go about becoming clean again and being able to enter the temple. Something that would always be unclean would be Gentiles. So in Gentile land. So if you were to leave the bounds of, of Jewish land, territory and you were to go into the Gentile world, you were in unclean land around unclean people. And so here we have an unclean spirit. And this unclean spirit is causing this particular man a great deal of suffering. Um, this spirit, even the process of getting the spirit out of him causes him great agony. So just remember that. This is sort of our introduction to the demonic or what we would call the demonic in the Gospel of Mark. And it is an unclean spirit, which means it's a spirit that is making somehow this, this man's experience unclean. And it's causing great pain. Now, one of my favorite stories in the, in the Bible probably is in Mark chapter five. And it's a story of another exorcism where Jesus uh, encounters a, a particular guy. And I, I don't even want to, I'll just read it to you. 
um, Mark 5.1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke to pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. So first, this, get, they get out of the boat on the other side, they're in Gentile territory, which means it's what? Unclean. And here comes a man with a unclean spirit and he's hanging out in a graveyard. Um, that is an unclean place, right? So th- this particular person we're being told is, is like unclean on every single level. This person has layers and he's in a great deal of pain. He's howling, he's harming himself. It's almost like he's being a little dehumanized, right? Like he's being presented as almost an animal and not a person. And you know what I think happens? It happens in the Bible and it's happened in the modern world uh, is when people are accused of being possessed by a demon, right? Um, it's almost like the person is the threat and not the thing possessing them. So this man is possessed by an unclean spirit that's causing him to do all sorts of things that he normally wouldn't do. And yet when he comes up, he's the threat. He's the problem. He, he's almost perhaps being blamed for his oppression. And and so he's super unclean. And then Jesus sees him from a distance and he runs over and he bows down before Jesus and he shouts at the top of his voice, what do you do do with me, uh, son of Jesus, son of the most high God? I, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly to not send him out of the region. So unclean guy, this, he runs up to Jesus and Jesus is, once again, the demon's chatty. And he and Jesus are in a dialogue and Jesus says, what's your name? And the guy says, my name is Legion. Please don't send me out of here. Now for us, 2000 years removed in a completely different world, in a sense, there's all sorts of things that for the initial audience, all of the lights on their dashboard would be blinking. Right? This would be like high alert. There's something we're being told in this story. Again, I think if we boil these down, the the validity or the importance of these stories down to whether or not they literally happened, then we're really missing the point. How how many of you, by the way, can prove something did or did not literally happen in the Bible? None of us. None of us. And, And I spent a good deal of headspace in my life trying to decide which one was true. And what I was missing the whole time was just meaning. So don't get stuck on, well, yeah, that, that seems a little fantastical. I don't think that story actually happened. Okay, fine. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't necessarily think these are literal stories either. But I think they're stories that matter. And if we can enter into them and engage them at a non-literal level and begin to listen and, and try to put on our first century ears for just a minute, some things might pop out at us. First of all, again, this unclean spirit recognizes who Jesus is and assumes Jesus has some sort of authority over it. Um, The name Legion, a a legion was a Roman military group, essentially a company of troops, of soldiers, about 6,000 soldiers. Now here's here's what is not, I I don't think the demon's like, there are 6,000 of us in here. That's how I used to read that, right? Like legion for we're many. 
Uh, let's just let that be. A legion is a Roman, a collection of Roman soldiers. And it's, so I don't think it's a statement about how many spirits are possessing him, but maybe it is a statement about the source of his oppression. So let's just hang on to that as we continue the story. Now there, on a hillside, there was a great herd of swine that were feeding and the unclean spirit begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herd numbering about 2,000 stampeded down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Yeah, that's what I, I read that right. That's exactly what the story says happened. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man possessed by demons sitting there clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion and they became frightened. Those who had seen what happened to the man possessed by demons and to the swine reported it. They began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. So, get, so this is the story. Jesus gets off a boat. Guy runs over, got some demons. Jesus sends them into the pigs. The pigs run into the sea. Everybody shows up to see what's happening. And they're all like, would you please leave, sir? <laughs> You're scaring the children. <laughs> right? Like, it's sort of that vibe. Like, I mean, why don't you say, no, 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 don't, don't, don't leave. Set up a shop. Set up a business. If you can do this with demons, I bet you can do other cool stuff. Um, if you think that's cool, wait do you see what he does with water um, when the wedding is running out of wine, right? Like, it, it seems a little odd. Why, why would you then at this moment say, I think this guy's got to get out of here? So first, let's talk about pigs. And, and it's pretty well known that pigs, according to the Jewish law, according to the Torah, that pigs were unclean animals. So the unclean spirit is asking to go into the unclean animals. But what we often miss is that a, a pig... Pigs were actually symbols of oppression because in the 160s BCE, so before the time of Jesus, about 160-ish years, uh, there was a Greek empire where the ruler of that empire, his name was Antiochus, but he called himself Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. So he's a, he's a guy who says, I'm God, I'm a God. And he decided that everybody in the world should become Greek. They should all have Greek religion. They should practice Greek rituals. They should speak Greek. It should, I call it the Greekification of the world. And that was the goal. And so he comes to Palestine, to Israel, uh, to Judea is what the New Testament would call it. And he goes into the Jewish temple. And in the Jewish temple, which is a, a clean place to worship the, the God Yahweh, the Jewish God, he offers a pig on the altar to the God Zeus. Now, in the book of Daniel, there's this line that talks about the abomination that causes desolation. How many of you have heard of that before? That is an actual reference to that event in history. Jesus references it later in reference to what would happen to the temple in the future, in the past for us, but in the future for, for his listeners. And so there's this, around pigs, there's this, this animal was used and was symbolic in so many ways of oppression, of our uh, the Jewish values not being respected, of Jewish customs and traditions not being respected, of another global empire, or at least regional empire, uh, coming to um, disregard, disrespect, and damage the people. Another fun little tidbit is that the Roman legion uh, that was stationed near Palestine was represented by a wild boar. So their standard would have been, the, the image that represented their group of troops was essentially a type of pig. 
And then the, the pigs rush into the sea. I read a really interesting commentary where somebody was like, you know, Jesus wrecked that economy. And again, I don't think, you have, I don't think we take the story literally right. But if you do, like, this is a big moment. Maybe that's why they asked Jesus to leave. But the pigs rush into the sea. Um, how, how many fans of the ocean do we have? Yeah. Isn't that the best? Just the ocean. There's the, being around the ocean, there's this moment where it's, it's like, this is so huge, and I am so small, and fish use the bathroom in it, but we don't talk about that <laughs> enough. But, it's this, it's really, but also, the, the sea is unpredictable, right? And in the ancient world, the sea was symbolic of chaos um, because it's this uncontrollable place where fortunes were often destroyed or made. And so that's why in the book of Revelation, one of the things that always bothered me when I was a literalist was when it said that in the new heaven and the new earth, there would be no more sea. It's like, but the ocean's the best thing. Well, but in the ancient world, when the ocean, the sea was symbolic of chaos, specifically political chaos, it was used as an image of. No wonder they wanted nothing to do with it in a new heaven and a new earth. No more chaos, no, no, more, no more damage, no more harm needs to be done in that world. And so the pigs, full of uncle, unclean animals, full of unclean spirits, rush into the, the middle of the chaos. And by the way, when the Romans came, how do you think they probably came to pa Israel, Palestine? By sea. By sea. And so something is going on in this story. And this man who had been liberated of this oppression is now sitting and he's back to himself. Once being liberated from this unclean legion of spirits, he, he's able to come home to who he is. He's able to be who he was meant to be. And then they asked Jesus to leave. Please go. Please depart. And so I want to I think about that story, and I want to ask the question, so what about demons? When we read these stories, do they have anything to say? If we don't take demons literally, and if you do, I'm, that's not a slam on you. I, I just don't. If we don't take the story literally, do these stories have anything to say to us? Or are they just sort of ancient superstitions? Let, let's begin with this. Every element of this particular story um, speaks to the oppression the Jewish people were experiencing from the Roman Empire. And, and that is now my limit. When I see demonic possession in the Gospels, the first question I ask is, how is this story about what empire is doing to the people? Because this man possessed with a legion is in deep pain. And I think it is a way of commenting and offering commentary on the brutality and dehumanization of empire. This is what global empires do to people. This is what colonialism does to people. This is what one group of people having bigger armies and more weapons and imposing their order on the world, this is what it does to the actual human beings who are experiencing the oppression. So I begin there. And I think that this story, we're supposed to see in this story, Mark is using it to say there is a conflict happening in the first century. It is a conflict between the values of Rome and the values of the kingdom of God. It is a conflict between Caesar and Jesus. And it's coming to a head. It's going to boil over. A little bit later in the gospel, Jesus and Caesar have an actual confrontation where Jesus is nailed and crucified and executed on a Roman cross. So I think we're, we're being, this is a story of Roman occupation. It's a story of colonialism. It's, it's all that oppression brings, all that dehumanization brings, all that exploitation brings. 
and it devastated the vast majority of the lives it touched. And by the way, in the 21st century, it still devastates the vast majority of the lives it touches. Being an American is a really, really tense and awkward thing, isn't it? When you think about the potential for good that we have, and you also think about our track record, which is many, many times not done the good, but has placed America first at the expense of the rest of the world. And so we li- I live with that uncomfortable tension. But what if we allow the demonic possessions in the New Testament to be symbols of what happens with empire? And so this story raises questions, right? Like, how should first century Jewish people respond to Roman oppression? There were two responses. We'll fight them. Really three, we'll fight them, we'll withdraw, or we'll engage in nonviolent resistance. That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus engages in nonviolent resistance uh, to get rid of the Romans. But, but here's the question that I think we have to deal with. What is the demonic today? Where do we see that happening in our world? And I'm not talking about Linda Blair's head spinning around and pea soup coming out. I'm talking about where do we see systems of oppression that are harming and dehumanizing people? Where do we see people in deep pain? And instead of rushing to help the pain, we blame the people who are in pain for their pain. Have we, I don't know, created an economic system that works for just a few people? And for the vast majority, life is difficult and hard. And then we blame people for not doing better. What if we lived in a a country where the poor were being criminalized? What if we lived in a state where the unhoused were being criminalized? I was talking with a friend about criminal justice reform, and this is a little tidbit I'd known for a long time, but it really just came crashing in. Do you know that people, when they go to jail, they have to pay to be there? And so you go to to jail and you're having to pay to be there, but you're not able to go work to be able to pay. And so it creates this cycle of debt that you can really never escape. It's just this thing. It's one thing after another. We have cycles that perpetuate what's happening in inequality in our country. I'd call that demonic, right? Because it is a system that is harming people. And so often these systems aren't even human anymore, right? They began, they come from humans. Every good and terrible thing that has existed on this planet has come from us. Except tornadoes and hurricanes. We don't really have that kind of power. I'm talking societally, right? When a group of people get together and decide, no, 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 we're we're going to march and we're going to raise our voices and we're going to demand the right to vote. We're going to march, we're going to raise our voices, and we're going to demand bodily autonomy. That's a beautiful human expression that actually can change things and move the needle. But that same energy can then be used, and it could be a bunch of white dudes in khaki pants on a college campus with torches, chanting, you will not replace us. 
both of those have the potential to leave the human and become something more, right? So how many of you um, have ever had any dealings with money? Okay, a couple of you. Um, think about this. We have this thing called the market. It opens every day at like, what, eight or nine Eastern, and they ring a bell, and we watch this happen all day. And, and these, these are numbers, and our lives are, well, not my life necessarily, but some people's lives are really affected by what those numbers do. Do you know we made that? Like, we made that. Somebody sat around and went, we need this thing with numbers that does this and totally either changes people's lives for the better or completely ruins them. Let's all sign up for that. And then this thing takes on a life of its own, right? It's called now the market, and the market controls everything. And it didn't start, it wasn't like there was this deity that called the market that just popped into the planet. It was a thing we made that then took on a life of its own. I would call Nazi Germany demonic but they weren't possessed by ghosts. It was human beings who were giving in to evil, hate, bigotry, and racism, and it eventually took on a head of steam, and then suddenly it was threatening the whole world. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, what I think the demonic is today, it's, it's that stuff that happens that begins in, in humanity, but it somehow transcends us, and it becomes now this thing that's working over against us, and it's this thing that we have to resist, and this thing we have to wrestle with, and what we spend our time doing so often is blaming those who are being oppressed by it instead of working to liberate the oppression and holding the system accountable. We, we can talk about it with economics, we can talk about it with white supremacy, we can talk about it with homophobia, we can talk about it with misogyny and patriarchy. It's all over the place. And it's, it's, the, it's the thing that we wake up and go, well, this is just how the world works. Says who? Says who? What if the world could be different? And I actually think followers of this Jesus have a responsibility to perform exorcisms in the 21st century. Not the kind where we're throwing holy water at people, but the kind where we are taking seriously how the way we live our lives impacts the most marginalized in the world, not just our country, but in the world. And I think it's standing up to these systems that are harming people and actually saying people are more important and more valuable than systems. A human life is more valuable than what somebody's bank account says. And we live in the richest country the world has ever known, and we, we have people who can't eat, but we spend how much on defense? We spend how much? More than every other country combined so that we can find new and creative ways to kill other people with robots? In, in reality, there's... For a fraction of that, we could change not only hunger in America, but in the world. And we wake up every day, at least I do, and I go about my life as if all of this is normal. And if this is just how it has to be. When in reality, I think we're being called to exercise some demons. I love that Jesus just says, Give me, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? And just imagine in this story, imagine Jesus saying, what's your name? And the demon saying back, white supremacy. 
Imagine the demon saying back, homophobia. Imagine the demon saying back, class warfare. And then Jesus begins the healing process because Jesus had this unique, beautiful gift of actually being able to see people. Not numbers. Not enemies or friends. I imagine anybody this person would have gone up to, they would have been a little afraid. Right? This is a person who's howling and harming themselves. They're very clearly not okay. And Jesus doesn't run and bury his head in the sand from the problem. He steps up to it and he engages it and he sends an unclean spirit right where it should have been, the bottom of the sea. And I'm not smart enough or creative enough or gifted enough to be able to outline for you, here are the next 10 steps that Christians need to take so that we're a part of the solution and not part of the problem. But I do know this, if by raising awareness that, that what demons are, it's not the stuff that goes bump in the night, it's the injustice that happens in broad daylight that nobody says anything about. That's the problem. And then asking perhaps, what can we do as a community in our everyday, ordinary sort of lives? Because I don't know about you, I live an everyday, ordinary sort of life. Um, what can we do in those moments? How we spend our money with how we see people, with how we step up and use our voice when we see something wrong, something that's harming people and dehumanizing people. What if we began to take that so seriously that it begins to move the needle? I think that's what they're saying in this story, by the way. Here's how we get rid of the Romans. We see people that nobody else sees. We love them. And we form community where we all take care of each other. That's how we do it. How do you beat the Roman Empire? You starve the beast by not starving your fellow Israelite. How do do we defeat all the injustices around us? Small decisions every single day, one day at a time. Are you with me? Jesus is in the business of liberation. And I think it's a tragedy that the church for 2,000 years, that claims his banner has not been the source of liberation, but far too often the source of oppression. And so maybe before we go start trying to exercise the demons outside, the church needs to begin to look inward and say, where are demons and how do we need to be healed? And I'm grateful for places like this one because we're doing that. And this community, I think, is a beautiful example of taking Jesus seriously. And sometimes we get criticized because we don't take it all literally. But I would rather take it seriously, wouldn't you? I would rather it change not just how I argue with people on Facebook, I'd rather it change how I actually live my existence in the world. Yeah.